Bible reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6. Please hear the word of the Lord. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. Please hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that your word would work in our hearts and minds. Lord, again, where we need to be taught, where we need to be corrected, where we need to be rebuked, Father, we pray that you would do so, that we might be trained in righteousness. So, Father, please, may your words not simply come before us this morning as words, but may you and your grace, Father, send them forth in power and in your spirit. Lord, that we would be changed, that we would be purified and perfected through your word. And so, Lord, we thank you that your word does not return void. And so, Father, have mercy upon us now. In Jesus' name, amen. You have your Bibles there. We are up to Ephesians 4. We begin the second half. We've just gone past the halfway mark. Ephesians has six chapters, and we've just done the first three. The first three are essentially the doctrine, the teaching, what we need to think, how we need to think, the truth that defines us. But now it's where the rubber hits the road because chapters 4, 5, and 6 are about how we are to live in light of what we know, how we are to live in light of who we are. Sometimes we like the first three chapters because they're glorious, but we can then start still living in ways that seem right to us, doing what is right in our own eyes. But God hasn't just told us glorious things. He has also given us a glorious way to live. And this is why I say the rubber hits the road, because the Bible is very specific, very prescriptive about what God expects of us and how we are to live and the life that he expects. We don't just get to do what is right in our own eyes. And that's why we need to constantly come back to the word to check. And so a verse this morning, verse 1 reads, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I was wondering how to do this part because we need to consider what that therefore means because the therefore is everything that's gone before. And I think it will be helpful not just to summarise what's gone before just with a word or two, but I'm going to go a little bit slowly and actually just skim right through chapters 1, 2 and 3. I encourage you either have your Bible open and just go with me as we consider this great calling, this glorious calling, or feel free to shut your eyes and just Write them on your heart, one by one. If you're to turn back to chapter 1, 
Verse 3, we're reminded that God speaks well of us. That God has blessed us in verse 3 in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, that God has chosen and elected us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That God did this so that we would be holy and blameless before him. Verse 5, God in love predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Christ. God has blessed us, verse 6, in Christ, his beloved son. Verse 7, it is in Christ that we've been redeemed, that we've been forgiven, that all our sins have been taken away. Verse 8, it is in Christ that God has lavished his grace upon us. Verse 9, God has not left us in the dark. He's revealed his ways. He's turned the lights onto the gospel. Verse 10, God has made known to us how everything ends. Christ will be Lord over all forevermore, that God too has given us an eternal glorious inheritance. Verse 13, that God has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. God himself is our guarantee. We move a little bit further to verse 19. God's immeasurable power, God's power is at work for us and in us. Chapter 2. The opening verses remind us that God in Christ has given us new life. We've been born again, regeneration. God in Christ has set us free from slavery to the world and to the devil. That God has set us free even from our sinful nature. That God has taken us from being children of wrath to being his very own children. Verses 4 and 5, we see God has poured out his rich mercy and his rich grace upon us. Verse 6, we saw that God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And then we see that God has in store for us an eternal future in which we, he will pour out the immeasurable riches of his grace upon us in Christ. Verse 10, verse 8, God has done all this freely and entirely as a gift. By grace, through faith in Christ. Verse 10, that we are God's workmanship. God himself is the workman who is working in our lives. That God has made us a new creation, created anew in Christ. Verse 12, that God has made us citizens of Israel in Christ, that we might share in the covenants of promise. That God has given us a sure and eternal hope in Christ. Verse 13, that God has brought us near in Christ to himself. God has broken down the walls of division so that Jews and Gentiles can together be at peace in Christ. Verse 18, God has given us access to himself, his very self in Christ by the Spirit. And the end of that chapter, we see God has set us apart to be his special holy people, to be the saints, made members of his household, putting us together as his temple with Christ as the cornerstone, that God would dwell in us by his spirit. Chapter three. We see that God took the initiative to send people that we might hear the gospel. God sent Paul to Ephesus so that they could hear about Jesus and be saved. God has made known the gospel through his apostles. God has made us fellow heirs with Israel in the promises in Christ Verse 6, we've been made members of the body of Christ, partakers of the promises in Christ. 
God has revealed and is revealing unsearchable riches to us in Christ. Verse 9, he's taken us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Members of his church, the body of Christ, by which God is making known to the powers in the heavenly places his manifold wisdom. Verse 11 to 13, we see God has enabled us in Christ to come boldly and confidently before him without fear. We pray to God as our Father. Verse 16, that God will empower us with his very own strength to persevere through the Spirit. God will do that. That God has given Christ that he might dwell in our hearts through faith. We are a people whom God has rooted and grounded in love. We are a people whom God actually wants us to know more and more of his love. To know more and more of his love that is in Christ that surpasses knowledge. Verse 19, God wants us to be filled with the fullness of God. And God, our God, is able to do far more abundantly than all that you ask or think according to his power which is at work in us. And God has made you and me a member of his church in which he will receive glory forever and ever. I'm sure we haven't covered everything. But if you were to pause and pray and meditate on those things, if not now already, you would be overwhelmed by a glorious calling. God has called us. That's verse 1 of chapter 4. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul has taken us through chapters 1, 2 and 3 right up to the mountaintops. Everything that God has done for us. What a glorious salvation. But now he says in verse 1, I urge you therefore a prisoner for the Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We used to hear that phrase, what is your calling in life? Don't seem to hear it as much these days. And someone might answer, my calling in life is to be a doctor or a missionary or a mum. A calling is something that you dedicate your life to. It's what you're given to. It's what you labour for and you give it your all. You strive to be the best at it you can be. And this morning, God says to us directly through his word that we who have been trusted with Christ, with the gospel, have all received a calling. The greatest calling. No matter what you do in life, whether you're rich or poor, married or unmarried, educated or uneducated, slave or free, we all share in this calling. And this calling is to live our lives for the glory of God. That is our purpose that God has set us aside for. As a Christian, you can never say your life has no purpose. We don't know what your life is all about. Your life is never on hold as a Christian. From the moment you were saved, God gave you the most noble of callings. The greatest, the most honourable, the calling which is of eternal nature and will know no end. God called you and me to live for his glory, to bring glory to his name, to be a vessel for the most honourable of uses. Remember chapter 2, verse 10. 
For we are his, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, called to good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And now at the start of chapter 4, Paul is urging us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And just before in verse 21, we see of chapter 3, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That word amen means so be it. God will receive glory through his church. And as the church, you and I have been called to walk in those good works which God has prepared for us, set us apart for, to be done in his power that we would live lives that bring glory to him. Declaring his praises, showing God to be glorious. That is your calling. That is my calling. You may be a doctor, you may be a screen printer, you may be a mother, you may be a farmer. You may even be sick in bed, wherever you are, whatever you are doing, God has called you in that situation to this high calling, to live for his glory. And even if you're unemployed, your work is the same. As every other Christian in your present circumstances, you still keep living for God's glory. We're always employed as Christians, employed for the glory of God. Even if you're retired, you don't get to retire from this calling. For we are all to live lives that bring glory to God till our very last breath and then breathe in into all eternity. It's an endless calling. You might know Johnny Erickson Tata. She's a quadriplegic in her wheelchair as she lives a life worthy of her calling, declaring God's praises. She fulfills her calling just as much as a missionary such as David Livingston going to Africa. A mother raising her children for the glory of God fulfills her calling just as much as a man who's called to be a pastor. It's a privilege. It's extraordinary. And the reality is it is the calling which will bring you the most satisfaction because it's from God and it's for God and it's unto God. And so it's going to bring you joy. Paul could have joy living a life worthy of this calling, even in prison, even when he was hungry, even when he was shipwrecked in the ocean, he could still have joy. And see Paul's words there, I urge you to walk in this manner. I urge you. That is not legalism. People who say, or when we exhort people or hear the Bible challenging us to live in a manner worthy of a calling, saying there's a wrong way and there's a right way, if they call that legalism, they're ensnared by the devil because they are resisting God's call to be holy. Our works are only legalistic. Our works are only legalism if we are doing them so as to be saved. But Paul has made it so clear, so plainly in chapters 1 to 3, there is nothing we can do to be saved. God has done it all. It is after that, on top of that, that Paul is urging us to live. God has done everything. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 say, done, done, done. 
And if God has done everything, he has elected us, predestined us, saved us, redeemed us, forgiven us, made us alive and cry, what is our response? Our response? To give everything. To use all our strength that we have to live for his glory. Our response is not nothing. Receiving and being alive in the gospel never leads to indifference or passivity. God's grace is transforming grace. It brings new life. Those who are the servants of God hear the exhortation, live a life worthy, urging us on, and we say yes. If we realize we not, we repent and we say, I will follow. 1 Corinthians 9.27. Want to see how Paul has a go at living a life worthy of his calling. 1 Corinthians 9.27. Because Paul again and again says, follow my example. He says, I'll start at 26. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He disciplines his body. He strives. Paul is urging us because there we will face the temptation not to live a life worthy of our calling. We'll be tempted to take the easy road. The Christians in Ephesus were in danger of losing heart and so not pressing on with and the strength that they should. You know your life. You know if you're living a life worthy of the calling. And if you're someone striving to, you'll immediately know you fall short of it, but then you're saying, God, help me. There's not indifference. There's not a pushback. The Bible is speaking to you this morning. Follow Paul's example. Listen to what Jesus is saying through him. Give it your all. And as you do, something extraordinary takes place. A supernatural work is actually taking place because the power by which you will be striving to live a life worthy of your calling won't be yours. It'll be God at work in you It'll be like we saw in Paul's week prayer at the end of chapter three last week. It'll be that prayer being answered, being strengthened through the power of the spirit that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. Striving not in your strength, but God's strength. As we give it our all to live lives worthy of our calling, it'll be God at work through us. Colossians 1.29, turn a little bit to the right. Colossians 1.29. Start at 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all... My energy? No, his energy that is powerfully, that he powerfully works within me. It'll be no different for you or for me. 
as we heed the urge to live lives worthy of our calling, that it'll be God working powerfully within us. God never calls us to do something which he won't enable us to do. If you're feeling weak, ask God for help. And so the first half of this letter has told us of glorious things. It's made clear the calling. But now the second half is going to describe what we have been called to be. And it's specific. We are asked to mould ourselves to be like Jesus, to be holy. We don't get to to shape the mould. God is shaping us to fit the mould that is perfect in Jesus. And so here we see what it means, what it will look like at the beginning of chapter 4, and we'll get more to go, but at the beginning of chapter 4, what would it look like for you and me to live lives worthy of the calling? Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's a big emphasis on unity, on oneness. That would be especially significant to the church in Ephesus because there we hear of Jews and Gentiles have been brought together. Before the gospel came, there was great division between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews thought they were better than the Gentiles. They didn't like the Gentiles. They kept themselves separate from the Gentiles. But Gentiles too, as history shows, consistently don't like the Jews, have issues with the Jews. But even Christian Gentiles we see, if you read in Romans, can become, be tempted to be arrogant towards Jews who don't believe. Saying, we can see Jesus, but you have a problem. You look back to Ephesians 2, 14. Paul reminds them from where they came from. For he that is Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Where the gospel goes, where the gospel takes root, hostilities are broken down. Walls come crumbling down. At the moment, our world works hard to divide. Whereas the gospel unites in Jesus. In Christ, Jews and Gentiles become one. And Paul drives that oneness home. Seven times he speaks of our oneness. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit just as we are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. As if to say a perfect unity, a perfect oneness, God only intends to save one people, not a divided people, one bride, one body, one temple, one household. Unity in the church brings glory to God. Unity comes, we are told, when we are bonded together in the bond of peace. 
peace is the thing that holds us. Where the peace is broken, there's the division. Where there is no peace, there will be division and hostility. They go back to where they were. So how will we be able to maintain these bonds of peace? That's what verse 2 was about. That God's people would be filled with all, not some, all humility, all gentleness, all patience, and bearing with one another with all love. Where where humility is lacking, gentleness is lacking, patience is lacking, and love is lacking, there will be the danger of breaking the bonds of peace. Pride is not put to death. We'll be harsh. If we can't be patient with others, we will give up on them. If we don't bear with one another, we will break away. Humility, gentleness, patience and love are the fruit of the Spirit. Having been given new life in Christ, having been made a new creation, God is at work that our hearts might be changed and bear forth this fruit. This is how we are to be in our church family. This is what our homes should look like. This is what we are to be like in the world. And so if we're to live lives worthy of our calling, we need to consider, and that's what we're going to do now, these four things. That we might be one. And we can ask God to help us in these things. I know myself, you know yourself, how easily we can be given to these things. We need his help. We need to pray for the Spirit to give us the power. So let's start with humility. Verse 2 says, coming off verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. If we are to live lives worthy of our calling, we must walk in humility. Humility is beautiful in the sight of God. A humble life brings glory to God. Let's consider the opposite. The opposite of being humble is to be proud. Pride is what comes most naturally to us, whoever we are. Before God called us, we lived to please the passions of our sinful flesh. Our sinful nature doesn't want to be humble. It prefers being proud. It loves it when others think highly of us. It loves, us, loves it when we can be first. It wants to keep us on top. When someone wrongs us, we want to get revenge so as to get them down. If someone humiliates us, we want to humiliate them more so to get ourselves back up. Pride forgets God because we desire for others to think well of us. Or pride forgets God because we desire to be over people rather than thinking how about being under God. And pride doesn't back down until it's back on top. Pride doesn't bend, it pushes. And what's our world constantly say to us? You're the most important person in the world that feeds your pride. Pride unsatisfied will lead to division, not the peace that binds us in unity. 
And so how do we overcome it and strive for this humility, all humility? We've got to remember our calling. There can be no pride in the church when you consider your calling. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the great leveler. No one is better than anyone else. We are all by nature objects of wrath. We were all utterly lost, helpless and hopeless. You are only what you are because of the sovereign grace of God. Anything good in you is only because of God. We are only in the church because of Christ and what God has done for us. Anything being worked in us is God. The gospel keeps us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. And consider the example of Jesus, the greatest man of all, the Son of God, who in very nature was God, but what? He did not grasp for that equality with God, but made himself a servant, even laying down his life to death on a cross. And Jesus says to us, the greatest among you will be your servant. We are to follow Jesus' example. We are called to give ourselves for the sake of others, to serve and not be served, to never exalt ourselves. If we are to live lives worthy of our calling, maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, we will need to walk in humility, in all humility, just as Christ humbled himself to save us. And so that's the first one. Let's ask that God will give us the strength to be humble, to put to death our sinful nature. Verse 2 then speaks of gentleness. If we are to live lives worthy of our calling, we must walk in all gentleness. Gentleness is beautiful in the sight of God. A gentle life brings glory to God. Just the word gentle, when you say it, sounds beautiful. Gentle is just so wonderful. The opposite of being gentle is being harsh. Being harsh is what comes so naturally, doesn't it? Our sinful nature wants to fight. And we can be harsh in our actions, and Christians must never be physically violent. God hates it. In our homes, there must be no physical violence. In our churches, there must be no physical violence. We are to be gentle with one another. But we can also be harsh in our words. When we are harsh in our words, we're also being violent. Harsh words, just like harsh actions, have the goal of making someone feel hurt and to cause them pain. If we don't have the option of violence, physical violence, we grab the words. A harsh response is really about trying to keep the power to dominate, to try and overcome the other one, to make them cower a little bit. When you raise your voice in anger, it's just like raising your fist because you're wanting to dominate the situation. If we are harsh to one another, it will lead to division, not to the peace that binds us in unity. So how do we overcome our harshness and strive for all gentleness? 
We remember our calling. By nature, you and I are objects of wrath. You have wronged God and I've wronged God again and again and again and again. We were terrible sinners who lived. We lived to offend God. No one has ever wronged you as much as you have wronged God. The greatest wrong someone has done to, towards you, the, and the greatest wrong someone has done towards you is still lesser than the smallest wrong you have done against God. God readily and rightly could have crushed us. But instead, he was gentle with you. He did not strike you down. Instead, he sent his son to die for you. He crushed Jesus so that he may not have to crush you. God's grace abounds in gentleness. Rather than making you pay, Jesus paid. And God gathered us to be his children, his very own children adopted to be his sons, to be a wash in his love. Your harshness towards God was not met with harshness, but with grace abounding to you, the chief of sinners, with all gentleness. God, your father, the master craftsman, didn't crush you in his hands, but picked you up in those omnipotent hands so that he could gently be the master craftsman to shape you and form you into the image of Jesus. Remember Jesus. On the way to the cross, though he faced endless lies and harsh words, he never responded harshly once. No one has ever been wronged as much as Jesus. He was reviled and he did not revile back. Even as they nailed him to death on the cross, bang, 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 he prayed for them. No harsh words. He could have called down an army of angels. He didn't. He was gentle. He returned curse with blessing, with prayer. Christ, our good shepherd, was nailed to that cross, laying his life down for his sheep his wayward wandering sheep to gather you into his arms, to carry you close to his heart. And how gentle is Jesus, we're told. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick, if you are just to breathe on it, it would all come crumbling down. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. If we are to live lives worthy of our calling, maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace. We must walk in all gentleness, just as God has been gentle to us. We ask God for the strength to do that. Patience, that's the third one. With all humility and gentleness, with patience. If we are to live lives worthy of the calling, we've got to walk in all patience. Patience is beautiful to God. The life that displays patience brings glory to God. What's the opposite of being patient? It's being impatient or rash. That comes most naturally to our sinful nature. Our sinful nature wants to bite back as fast as we can when we're offended. 
James 1.19. Let every person be quick to hear, to listen and slow to speak. For when we are quick to speak and to strike back, it's usually an overflow of an angry heart. When we are not given to patience, we're being controlled by our emotions and they'll be, they'll be our simple emotions. And so often our emotions are not guided by truth or by the love of God. Rash, impatient words are given to hurt and intended to do so, to strike back. When we respond rashly and quickly, we're taking things into our own hands rather than looking to God. So if we are impatient and rash towards others, it will lead to division and not the peace that binds us in unity. And so we need to remember our calling because that reminds us just how patient God was with us. The world says and does the most horrible things towards God. If we were God, say this was your world, how long would you have persevered with it? You probably would have thrown it all out by now after day one and started again. Yet this is God, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you. Not once wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God hasn't lashed back at a rebellious humanity. God wants wicked men to repent. He's delaying his righteous wrath so that we would be saved. Imagine if your patience, you had a little patience meter and you, you had it set. Imagine your patience meter and then imagine God had one too. And he was to set his patience meter to the same setting as your one. That would probably be terrible. We probably would have been destroyed a million times over. If you have a child, you know how much patience you need to show them. Day in and day out. Yet I tell you, each day your Father in heaven shows you, his child, far more patience than you'll ever show your own child. Consider Jesus. As they were nailing him to the cross, he could have just responded rashly and harshly and destroyed them with an army of angels. As they spat on him, ripped his beard out, as they shredded his back with whips, as they nailed him, as they again and again, as they thrust a spear through his side, he could have responded, but he didn't. Jesus was always slow to anger, even as he is being killed. Every harsh word, every hurtful deed done towards us, we need to follow his example and not lash back, but entrust the situation to God. So if we're to live lives worthy of our calling, maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, we must walk in patience, all patience with one another, just as God has been patient with us and we ask him for the strength to do it. And the last one, with all humility, 
and gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another in love. To live lives worthy of our calling, we must bear with one another in love. Love that bears with your brother or your sister is beautiful in the sight of God. It displays God's love. It brings glory to God, just as all the other ones do. The opposite of bearing with one another in love would be not to bear with one another in love. When something happens to us or we're offended, our sinful nature will will say, okay, I'll bear with that person begrudgingly. Or our sinful nature will say, I don't want to bear with that person. I want to cast them off. That is the way of the world, not the way of his church. And the world bearing with one another is conditional. You only have to bear with someone if they do right by you, make you happy, etc. But if they do anything you don't like, the world says you're allowed to cast them off. Conditional love is worldly. And if that is the sort of love we show for one another, it will lead to division. And not the peace that binds us in unity. So we've got to remember our calling. Because that's the thing that is going to guard our hearts in these areas. Remember our calling so that we will bear with one another in love. Remember God's unconditional love for you. Parents who love their children, again, bear with them every day when they're unbearable. I can think of horrible times in my life where my parents or my father in particular had to bear with me. But he did because he loved me. He didn't throw me out. How much more will your heavenly father who has predestined you to be adopted as his son bear with you? He loved you. He's chosen you. He's committed himself to you even before the world began. Even while you lived a sinful, rebellious life, his love for you was higher, wider, longer and deeper than you can imagine. His love for you goes all the way into eternity where he will, he will bring you before his glorious presence with great joy. Even though between now and then you and I have many bumps and notches and bristles that need to be chopped off. Even though you and I know probably today there's going to be many lapses. God is the craftsman. We are the the work in his hand and he is bearing with us in love day by day by day. He knows what you are like more than you even know yourself. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow and the next day when Christ died for you the day God called you and you were born again. God foresaw every day and he began a good work in you which he will bring to completion even as you wrestle and grizzle and carry on because he will bear with you in love. Consider Christ. Sacrificial love. He never served himself. While you were an enemy, Christ died for you. While you're still an enemy of God. While you're wayward and wallowing in sin, the good shepherd came looking for you. Every sinful deed that should have you cut off from a righteous God, Jesus says, put on me. I will bear it. Every day you and I fall short of this calling. Every day God does bear with us in love. So wonderfully, Christ is there before the Father interceding and pleading for us, saying, 
I've paid for that. I've paid for that. I've paid for that. Jesus doesn't cast us off. He keeps saying, I've died for you. Jesus in every way bore and bears with you in love. If we are to live lives worthy of our calling, maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, we must bear with one another in love. Just as God has borne us in his love. And we ask God for the strength to do that. And so some thoughts in closing. As God's people, we are called to all humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. When we don't display those things, we never have an excuse. That is what we are called to. We can never say, but the situation, I had no option. This is what we are called to. All the situation is showing is your sinful nature, the things you still have to work through. No matter what the circumstances, even if we were being nailed to a cross, God calls upon us to be humble, gentle, patient, and to bear with that person in love. That's a supernatural power we need and strength. And so secondly, we need God's help to do this. I've said that repeatedly, and we need to pray for it. Because do you know where you need to grow? Which one do you need to be praying for? Is pride something you've got to try and really wrestle with? Or is it your harshness in your speech or your impatience with others or someone that you're not bearing in love with love? Remind yourselves of chapters one to three so that you can keep remembering who you are in Christ. And may we be willing to sharpen each other so that we can be perfected in these areas. Men, may you take a lead in the church, in your homes, in being gentle and patient and kind. Parents, are you showing your children what it is to be gentle, patient, kind and loving? This is what we are called to. And so I'm going to leave a period of time before I close in prayer. And I encourage us to each pray in the quietness of our own heart. Firstly, set aside time to repent of any pride, harshness, impatience or rashness or not bearing with others in love. Repent of it, say sorry. And then ask God for the strength to be humble and gentle and patient and to bear with others in love. So let's have a time of quietness and do business with God in these areas and then I'll close in prayer.
Father, please forgive us. We know left to ourselves we will be proud, harsh, rash and unloving. We are so selfish, so concerned about ourselves, Father. We pray that you would change our hearts. Lord, that you would stir our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, it is our desire not to have this fruit amongst us, but Lord, it's our desire to have the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, that you would work in our hearts and minds to make us more like Jesus. Lord, we need your help to do this. We need your help to put to death our sinful natures. But Father, it's our desire. And so do amongst us and in us whatever it takes, we pray, that we would be a people found living, worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In Jesus' name, amen.